Okay, you ready, Kyle? Yep. Okay. Hello, Ray Reich, host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Kyle Poyer, the VP of Growth at OpenView Partners. I've been following OpenView Partners and Kyle for a few years now, and I've been especially impressed, impressed by their thought leadership on product-led growth, coupled with their SaaS benchmarks research. On today's episode, we will cover three primary topics. Product-led growth, a definition of the inherent benefits, how product-led growth companies performed in first half 20 versus non-PLG companies, and the key performance indicators that are unique and critical for PLG. With that, Kyle, welcome to the Metrics at Major Up podcast, and please take a minute to introduce yourself and open view partners to our listeners. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ray. Uh, quick background around OpenView. Uh, we're an expansion stage software VC, uh, investing exclusively in B2B SaaS companies uh, that are scaling through hyper growth uh, from, you know, let's call it 1 million ARR to 10 million ARR when we invest all the way to, you know, hopefully 50, 100 million plus and uh, on the, uh, the going public track. And some of our portfolio companies that listeners might be familiar with are Datadog, uh, Calendly, Workfront, and Instructure. And in my role at OpenView, I get the chance to partner with our entrepreneurs uh, in the portfolio around looking at ways to accelerate their revenue growth. And so I'll work with them on advising and consulting work around top of funnel acquisition, conversion through the funnel, monetizing their products, and then driving uh, faster expansion revenue in their cohorts. And I've been in OpenView about four and a half years and have worked on over 200 different engagements with our portfolio companies uh, in that time. And then previously, I was at Simon Kucher uh, for six years. And Simon Kucher is the largest consulting firm focused on pricing and packaging strategy uh, while I was there, we were working with about a fifth of the Cloud 100 software companies. Uh, and so I've been able to apply a lot of those insights into uh, our portfolio. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today. And I think for our listeners, everyone over the last six months has been watching this stock performance of cloud companies and product-led growth companies such as Slack, Zoom, HubSpot, Shopify, MongoDB, just to name a few. So first of all, Kyle, can you provide me some more background on what's led to the OpenView partners and your specific focus on product-led growth? Why is such a high priority? Yeah, maybe just for listeners, the definition of product-led growth, because I think the term can sound like, you know, motherhood and apple pie, like product-led growth, it's just this nice thing that <laughs> all companies want to have good products. But when we think about it, it's end-user-focused growth models where the product is front and center and how the company acquires, converts, and expands their users. And so it's, it's not necessarily like a, an on and off switch. It's more of a dimmer switch, right? Uh, but I think the, the best product-led businesses are uh, leading with their product experiences and getting users into the product through freemium and free trial offerings, showing value right out of the gate, um, and then monetizing after the customer has been successful. And most of them have some sort of notion of, of a self-service conversion and then see rapid expansion from that end user into a team or into an organization enterprise-wide use case. And so I think that's just helpful context setting because we, we don't necessarily mean 
B2C companies or companies that are purely uh, end user focused. Uh, and we also don't just mean companies that have a good product. And the background around OpenView's interest in this um, business model, this type of company, I'd say it originated probably with our investment in Datadog, uh, which went public uh, last year and has been just an extremely successful company. And I think what we had just seen with, with most software businesses that we invested in, growth naturally slowed as the businesses scaled. It was really hard to continue to feed the lead generation, hire sales reps fast enough, get them ramped, uh, get them productive. And it was very expensive to scale a, a software business. And then businesses like Datadog, on the other hand, have been able to grow extremely rapidly at scale, in some cases, even accelerating their growth rate at scale, and they can do so in an extremely efficient manner. Uh, so I believe Datadog's rule of 40, for example, is somewhere like 86, right? It's completely off the charts uh, from a traditional uh, SaaS business. And that's because they're able to take things that would normally be done by people, uh, and they're able to apply that into the product, which is a lot more scalable and, and can fuel faster and more efficient growth. And so it was this experience with Datadog that we looked around at the landscape and we said, there's not really a community around growing a business like this. Like we have a lot of conviction in this model, but you know, we, you hear people talking about bottoms up motions, the consumerization of IT, uh, freemium models, self-service. Uh, there's all of these terms for it, even like shadow IT, if you want to use a, a negative term for it. Uh, but they're, everyone sort of saw themselves as building a really unique motion or business model. And we thought, let's create sort of an umbrella category around this and try to help bring in frameworks and best practices around how to grow this kind of business so that more entrepreneurs are inspired to start off with this model in mind and then companies are able to pivot and adopt these tactics to improve the efficiency of their business model. Very interesting. One of the things you talked about was, you know, the ability to scale much more efficiently. You know, one of the things I've traditionally done is hired large go-to-market sales teams, right? Both field sales and inside sales. And when we were looking at the first half 2020 KPIs for the SaaS industry, about 2,000 companies that we um, pulled data from, the cost to acquire a one new dollar of ARR was over a dollar and 60 cents. That's called the CAC ratio. Do you find that CAC ratio is much lower in PLG, product-led growth companies? In general, yes, there's certainly some, uh, some nuances, but in, in general, yes, right? Because in PLG businesses, your universe of potential customers is normally a lot larger, right? So for a lot of SaaS businesses, they're targeting the executive budget holder in a company. And that individual or set of individuals is stretched. They have a lot of competing priorities. They have dozens of other vendors reaching out to them it's really hard to stand out. And so companies uh, selling into that executive buyer need to do things like adopt uh, really expensive outbound BDR, SDR tactics. They spend a ton of money on demand gen through events, webinars, sponsorships, and so on. And it's just a really difficult slog to, to go through that process of 
spending the money to get, get to the lead, going through qualifications, demos, more demos, potentially three, six, nine month long sales cycles. And then it might even take a while before that sales, that booking turns into uh, annual recurring revenue in the product. And with a PLG motion, because these products have a, an ability to solve an end user pain point, they can apply a lot more of you know, high volume consumer-like marketing tactics uh, and they grow often through word of mouth, referrals, SEO, and they're able to bring a high volume of folks into the product. And then they're able to use the product to uh, make that initial conversion, uh, that self-service conversion and start generating revenue. And so they're able to normally cover costs of their acquisition pretty efficiently. And then what I, the way I think of it is their CAC payback is normally fairly efficient at the beginning, but then where sales and marketing often comes even more into play is after that initial conversion, how do you expand from that individual user or that small team to a larger team or enterprise-wide purchase? And so their um, sales motion is applied for expansion in their cohorts. And that's, again, a very efficient motion, right? It's easier to sell into an existing customer who sees value in a product than it is to reach an entirely net new audience. And so not only is the CAC payback on the initial deal efficient, but it is, it's still efficient to expand those cohorts of customers. So the only thing that where there's, there might be a bit of a nuance is that in some of these business models, the land and expand is so powerful. Like if you were to look at a snowflake, for example, I think their net revenue retention is somewhere like 160%. Some of these businesses that really can scale through a land and expand motion that efficiently, it, it gives them permission to spend even more on sales and marketing and, and go for a CAC payback or a CAC ratio that might look inefficient relative to other SaaS businesses, but just given those growth dynamics in cohorts, the lifetime value of customers is just so great that that initial uh, cost of acquisition is, is small by comparison. So that's the only nuance is that I think some of these companies proactively choose to, uh, for, to have a less kind of quote unquote healthy CAC ratio because they know that their um, unit economics are so effective. You know, Kyle, that's a really good point. A lot of our clients, you know, they're very focused on CAC ratio and how do I keep that in the $1.20 to $1.50 range. But what we're finding is those companies, to your point, that have hyper growth going on, 70, 80% at 50 million AR and above, and their net dollar retention is at that 130, 140, 150 and above versus the 102%, which is more common for the B2B SaaS industry, it's time to invest more and grow faster, to your point, that CLTV. Did you actually see in the last nine months or post-COVID that PLG companies have perform better than tra traditional sales led or is it case by case basis? I mean, everything in COVID is case by case, right? So we, uh, we ran a, uh, we run our annual SaaS benchmarking survey and we did this this time uh, after COVID. So after H1 results are in. And so that certainly indicated that, you know, there is a subset of companies that grew faster during COVID. And then there's a subset of companies that, were extremely impacted and then a bunch in the middle. Uh, but if I look at averages, 
on average, uh, PLG companies certainly perform better in uh, the public markets. And I think that that is buoyed certainly by uh, Shopify, which, you know, being in the e-commerce space and the shift of, of purchasing from in-store to e-commerce, certainly helpful for them. And I think that a PLG motion allowed them to service that demand really effectively because they have, it's just, it's so easy for them to get new customers to see value in the product um, and to sign up via self-service. And then they have uh, such a great marketplace to be able to add more and more value to their retail customers um, over time. And so I think that they, they were very well positioned for that uh, e-commerce boom. And certainly uh, Zoom as well. I mean, there's a bunch of product-related benefits that Zoom has uh, being able to serve uh, remote work use cases. But I think, again, they were, able, they were uniquely positioned to capitalize on that because it was so easy to get started in the product, to try it out, and then start paying for it and bring more people on a team to use it. So I think what happened with PLG businesses is that they, if, if there was going to be a rush of demand for their service, they were able to uh, handle that much better than a business that would have a traditional like sales and marketing heavy uh, go to market motion. And then I think if there was not that rush for their service, they still generally performed a bit better than their peers. And I think part of that is uh, with COVID, a lot of times major budgets were slashed or companies started prioritizing uh, the ability to uh, have optionality, right? So they didn't want to make big upfront purchases that they couldn't roll back. They want, they preferred to start paying, you know, per, on a per month basis or be able to try something out with a low commitment and then be able to spend more on it um, once they felt like there was more certainty in their business. And that change in buying behavior naturally lent itself more towards product-led growth and trying out products where you can get started for free start paying with a credit card, and then really don't have to make a major commitment until later on. And if you, just the other thing is that with, uh, with the shift to remote work and, and work from home, uh, SaaS businesses that can sell in a product-led basis, they're, they're always open, right? You can use the product uh, after work. You can use the product before work, in the middle of the day. Like you're not waiting for... Uh, a, a demo with a with a rep during business hours, and so these businesses were just able to accommodate these changes in how individuals are working, and the changing in in schedules and and when people are evaluating software. Uh, and it certainly helps to be uh, able to uh, to serve a, a customer when your competitors are not open for business. Yeah, the other thing I found is to really try to gain scale in a sales-led, we're getting areas of specialization, that sales development rep, and then they hand you off to an account executive. And if they have a broad portfolio, then you might need to go and talk to their product specialist along with the account executive. And as a buyer, I can get very frustrated with the sales-led model, where in the PLG model, it's, hey, I know what I need, let me test it, and then I can quickly share it with the rest of my employees. So it really works well. One of the questions I had for you is performance. You have the PLG index at OpenView Partners, and you also, I believe, have the SaaS index. Did you see over the last six months the PLG index performing better? And what metrics did you use to measure that performance against the two? 
And so there's a lot of ways that we can look at it, right? Like overall enterprise value of companies uh, in these kind of product-led businesses versus other uh, SaaS companies that have gone public. We could look at growth rates. We can look at uh, rule of 40. Uh, I think one of the just clearest ways of evaluating is to consider the uh, revenue multiple based on expected uh you know, enterprise value compared to expected revenue at the end of this year. And mm -hmm. what we found is that PLG businesses are currently trading at about an 18x multiple and that general sort of SaaS index is at about 12. And so that's one and a half X the revenue multiple. Uh, and the, the overall enterprise value is even, you know, uh, greater sort of weighted towards PLG companies. The enterprise value of the average PLG company was about 11.5 billion versus 5 billion for overall SaaS companies. And so the revenue multiples are higher, but also growth rates are faster and these businesses are at a bigger scale. And so overall enterprise value is significantly greater right now uh, from these PLG businesses. Yeah, correlations are very interesting to study. I've seen another correlation, which, by the way, is, is touches PLG, and that is in private acquisitions. If you look at companies that have a 10% higher net dollar retention at the same growth rate as another company, we're seeing their revenue to um, enterprise multiples being two to three X higher. And I think it's very similar because when you dig down into that, a lot of those are product-led growth based companies. But a question about that net dollar retention being so high, Kyle, do you at the same time at the beginning of the life cycle, when you first convert someone from a free or freemium product to a paid product, do you see gross dollar retention actually lower than a traditional sales led distribution model? And does it matter? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it certainly d depends on the on the business, but like the rule of thumb is probably yes, gross dollar retention is a bit lower. Uh, you can look at it different ways, right? So one way that we'll look at it is what's the gross dollar retention for among customers that spend less than a hundred dollars a month? What's the gross dollar retention among customers that spend more than that? as an indicator of, you know, what are the kind of more individual prosumer, consumer-like uh, revenue sources for this business versus the real team and enterprise-like use cases? Because if you, if you think about it, like that $100 a month threshold, it's really an indicator of if someone is kicking the tires, they're almost more on like an extended trial. They're just paying some revenue or they're paying a little bit of money towards it. Uh, while if they've spent more than that $100 a month, they're using this in a business context with a real business use case. And that's where you wanna make sure that the product is sticky. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, following through on the expectations that the customer has and that the customer is not graduating off of it, right? Like one of the risks with some of these businesses do is that someone sees this as an individual or an SMB product and not a product that can serve an enterprise use case, in which case, uh, you'd, you'd see uh, some nice early traction, but then the business runs out of their growth potential because customers graduate from the platform. Uh, and so I, I think the general rule of thumb, as you mentioned, is lower gross dollar retentions, higher net dollar retentions. But uh, 
you really have to dig into the nuances of the, of the business model and, and understand uh, different customer segments. So Kyle, what it sounds like you're recommending anyone with a product-led growth model is cohort analysis and very granular. It's going to be very important for them to truly understand what's going out on out there in the marketplace. Exactly. One of the other things, well, I'm going to step back. So before we get into key performance indicators that are specific to a PLG-led business, um, two different companies, one just starting, you know, how, how should they determine if they're a PLG or non-PLG based company? But let's start with that company that's been a traditional sales-led distribution model and they're contemplating adding PLG. Any words of advice if you're just starting to add it in addition to your current distribution model? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I would say, first of all, it's very hard. Uh, you don't see many companies on the PLG index that started as traditional sales-led and have moved more into PLG. And so I'd say it's very hard to get that motion right. It's, it's actually probably easier to go from PLG to layering in sales and more of an enterprise motion than it is the other way around. There, that there have been some com companies that have done well at it. So the companies I would point to as benchmarks would be to look at HubSpot, uh, MongoDB, and then uh, OutSystems as another as another example. And some of the the I think some of the challenges that those companies face is that they have they don't necessarily have a product that users can get to value with uh, quickly and on a self-service basis because they've re relied on human intervention at those steps. And it's really hard to have that level of focus and dedication to remove it. You almost have to remove features and simplify the product so that the user achieves sort of that initial promise or the value proposition that you've, you've stated that the product has. You want the customer to achieve that uh, it, within a day or within a week, and we call that uh, reaching activation in the product. And that's that's just really challenging to do and to and to retrofit. And so, uh, and by the way, one other thing that I noticed is that one of the elements of product-led businesses is that it's free to get started with either a free trial or a freemium motion. And you know who hates free? Uh, the army of sales reps uh, and BDRs who believe that uh, this might be cannibalizing um, the, their opportunities. There's all of a sudden this new sort of competitive product out there that they have to sell against. They no longer are selling against competitors, but competitors and the free version of a product. And, uh, and that if a product can be uh, bought via self-service, that could in theory reduce the number of leads that the sales team has um, to work with because uh, it's not critical for that customer to be engaging with sales um, to, uh, to convert to the funnel. In my personal view, all of those challenges are solvable and there's, there's ways to handle it. But I think that the, uh, the first step for me is, is generally looking at using a PLG motion for a net new product and so if you've uh, been looking at expanding into new product categories or you're you know, doing an aqua hire, those are a great way to test uh, a PLG motion without having any risk towards the core product itself. And then you can apply a lot of those learnings 
and tactics uh, to the, the core business later on. I think that's the motion that HubSpot went down. They, they really uh, honed the PLG motion on their sales hub product, uh, which was initially Sidekick and uh, an email tool for sales reps. And they got that motion humming and then they introduced free CRM tools and freemium offerings of all their other products after they learned how to make that motion successful. And, and so that's, I think that's a really um, important area. And then another one is, you know, uh, just looking at ways to uh, leverage the product to operationally improve metrics that you're already struggling with. And so instead of necessarily going all the way down the PLG path, uh, where can you say, hey, instead of spending a hundred grand on an analyst study uh, with a Forrester or a Gartner, could we allocate that marketing spend towards a free product opportunity that allows new users to experience the product and see value and can be a more scalable way of generating leads for us. And so you can even see an example like um, HubSpot's website grader product where before they had freemium versions of their products, they had this model where you could type in your website and get feedback on the performance uh, and all of the different ways that you could improve your website to generate more uh, contacts and leads. And then, oh, by the way, HubSpot's a great product to help you go accomplish that. And they've, I believe, now graded more than 4 million websites. And so there's also now this great data source uh, that they can pull from to um, improve their product and all of these great contacts that they can market to um, as potential customers for HubSpot. And I think that there's opportunities just like that for a lot of other businesses out there. And so looking at whether it's free products with a lead gen spin or just ways to simplify the product experience so your existing customers, your existing free trial users reach value uh, more quickly and in less time, which uh, actually that's the same thing, more quickly and with a better experience uh, so that they convert uh, faster through the funnel, they bring on more users within their company to use the app, they have higher NPS scores, and then they expand faster. You can do that in a no regrets way without the, the, uh, the risk that I mentioned. You know, one of the things you said early in the conversation was the SDRs and account executives might not like this. And I'm actually finding just the opposite, Kyle, that product-led growth companies it's really the product team, whether that's product management, product marketing, now are part of the demand generation engine and SDRs or account executives can reach out to trial customers and they get over the hurdle of even getting the company interested in their product and what they're doing. It's more about how they're using it, how they can optimize it, and then how it can be spread throughout the organization. So I think salespeople love PLG. Yeah, if I was a sales rep, I would love it for those reasons, right? Like instead of uh, engaging with prospects who don't know much about the product, don't have, a, you know, uh, need a lot of education and qualification and uh, lengthy sales cycles, you in theory just have a much better sell because you can talk to people that are already experiencing the product, see value out of it, and you're more of a partner with them or, or Sherpa to get to this shared vision of, where they can go with it. So it's, I think it's a great opportunity from a sales perspective. I think it's just more in the transition phase where it's most challenging because you have these leads that the sales team would be 
thinking that, um, you know, they would naturally sort of come to them. And then now these are folks that are signing up for the product or potentially converting via self-service without talking to sales. And so there's that friction point in the beginning. But what I think people realize over time is that product-led growth increases the overall pie and brings more people into the product. And then that allows sales to actually be really selective with who they interact with. And then you can even start to do things like implement a product qualified lead process where sales gets fed leads that have done certain actions in the product that indicate they're ready to buy. And so they really get sort of the crumb to the creme of leads. Uh, and you know, what's better to hit your quota than leads who are ready to buy uh, and just need a, a little bit of help uh, in their way to purchase versus uh, getting uh, bombarded with lots of leads that are, you know, most likely not going to convert. Yeah, you just mentioned uh, uh, product qualified leads, PQLs. What I'd like to ask you next is, since product-led growth is a different marketing and distribution model, there's a lot of new KPIs, some B2C-like KPIs that companies are going to need to track to understand where their efficiency is and where they need to get better. Things like web visit to free accounts or free account to paid accounts. Can you provide us like the top five KPIs that any entrepreneur out there who's considering a PLG model should really be tracking in that first one to $2 million of ARR? Yeah, absolutely. And when, what I would just say to on this point is that where Salesforce is really the system of record um, and the, the key data source that you're looking at in a, traditional sales lab business, you're now looking more at uh, product analytics platforms like a Pendo or an Amplitude or a mix panel. And those become your source of truth on, on your customers. And that's really important to implement and implement correctly uh, to be able to, to track these things. But yeah, I mean, you, you called them out exactly. I would say you're looking at um, the product funnel. And so that starts with getting someone to your website so number of website visitors, the uh, percentage of your website visitors that convert into a uh, free account. And then I would look at from your free account signups, what percentage of them reach activation or they reach the first uh, stage where they've seen value in the product. So that might be in like a Slack, for example, uh, because it's a collaboration tool. So uh, an, an activation would, end, would be uh, defined as, I think that for them, it's three or more unique individuals within an account using the product on multiple days within a week indicates that it's, you know, this is a team that's actively using Slack. And so that free account to activation rate is a leading indicator and should strongly correlate with conversion rates down the, uh, down the funnel. But then the, the next metric would be ultimately uh, free to paid conversion. And then I would say the, the last one would be uh, the, your uh, PQL rate. And so the percentage of your uh, both free accounts and paid accounts that become product qualified leads for the sales team or the customer success team. And product qualified lead, I know there's no such thing as a standard definition, but what are some of the common variables that define a PQL? Yeah, so it's all about uh, product engagement. And I think that this is something that most companies have to experiment with to figure out what's exactly right uh, for, for their business. 
but you're normally looking at either signs that the, that the user is um, seeing a ton of value in the product, right? So that could be, especially if you have a usage-based pricing model like a Twilio, you might look at number of messages that they're sending um, or you know, frequency of logging in, frequency of taking certain actions. Uh, you might also look at the number of users who are active within an account to indicate that this is going from an individual account to you know, a pretty large team. And that team probably is gonna be interested in you know, advanced analytics or enterprise grade features or you know, account management um, capabilities. And so you're looking at those product triggers. Uh, I'd say the, the product triggers, like I said, either indicators that the account is really healthy, seeing value and ready to buy, or they're trying to do certain things in the product that are really advanced features where they probably need more help and they need to talk to someone. So if they are, are you know, hovering on or trying to click uh, a product capability that's gated, like an advanced integration that you normally, uh, it's pretty challenging to set up on your own, that indicates that, hey, if you bring in human intervention here to help that customer do that, you know, that's going to be something that they're only going to do as part of a, a, a more expensive plan. And this is, you know, another indicator that this uh, user in the product is uh, a high value prospect. And so uh, basically high intent in terms of usage and then intent in terms of trying to do things that are uh, complex. And then the, the other overlay to add is that you can still add kind of the marketing qualification uh, spin on it, right? So you're not necessarily uh, reaching out to all of your product qualified leads but you can either uh, enrich your data with a service like Clearbit, or you can uh, ask some questions during the onboarding flow to get a sense for the size of the company, uh, what industry they're in, what region they're based in. And so in a lot of cases, companies are marrying the product engagement with uh, the marketing qualification to make sure that their sales teams are spending time with high value, highly engaged product users. You know, one of the other pieces of your research that I just found illuminating was the number of touch points for free accounts or trials to paid accounts. And I think the data I saw was like 11 or more touch points resulted in a 28% conversion versus, you know, one to three touch points, 8%. So are you recommending to your portfolio companies that having that automated triggers, touch points is critical to conversion rates, or is it more of a manual effort? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and so I, I, I guess I, uh, I, I struggle with that finding because it's it, we did find that, but I don't want it to be true. <laughs> and especially as a user of products, I don't want to be uh, bombarded with emails from, you know, automated emails from a product or from a sales rep. Uh, but what I'd say is, you know, it, it is really clear. There's a lot of studies that have shown it helps to have human intervention at some level. It's just making sure that that intervention is uh, personalized, it comes at the right time, uh, and it's actually a helpful touch point to uh, help the customer and the company achieve a shared goal. And so if you can layer on those kinds of touch points, they feel more like customer success, by the way, 
rather than sales, but they certainly help improve that customer experience and put them in a position where they're more likely to, to purchase. And so like one example in our portfolio is deputy, which is uh, in the workforce management space of so scheduling time and attendance for companies with hourly workers. And a lot of their customers, you know, they can use the product self-service, they can uh, convert on their own, but it's, you know, challenging for a small business owner to figure out, you know, most new technology and uh, a lot of them want extra help. And so what Deputy does with their sales team is their sales team is, is um, not just demoing the product, but trying to get that schedule for the customer and saying, hey, could you send us your current schedule of your team or let's work together of setting up your account. And then they're able to help the customer discover the additional features as that customer is, is starting to see success with the product. And so these touch points aren't necessarily like marketing messages and marketing emails, but they're more of a way to uh, try to uh, offer shared value uh, with the customer. In fact, Kyle, one of the things I've been thinking about is during that free trial and you know at the activation phase and trying to get them convert, the job of the resource from the vendor is more as a product Sherpa and to your point, more of a customer success person versus a salesperson. Do you ch see this changing organization structures over time where you have less SDRs or at least different personas of SDRs and more s customer success reps up front? Exactly. I think it's, uh, and I think we're all trying to figure out what the, the names for these roles are and, and the profiles because they're, they're not, uh, they're not consistent at, at companies yet, but I'd say like either way, whether they're called sales, SDR, customer success, they are, uh, they certainly have a lot of customer empathy. They have interest in the product and they're long-term minded rather than short-term quota minded. And so uh, it's, and even it influences things like compensation, right? Where uh, you start to, to think about, well, okay, if you're, salesperson on the account, they, they touch a customer that ultimately converts, but they convert via self-service. Should sales get comped on that or not? I would argue they probably should because it's about human intervention to facilitate conversion versus owning the sale in and of itself. Or if there's human intervention and then the initial sale is $100 a month, but that account goes up to $1,000 a month uh, just a few months later, should the, the rep be compensated on just that initial close or that uh, value a few months later? And again, I would argue it was because they were helping make that customer successful early on that that customer was able to expand. And you don't want to have incentives where your reps are trying to maximize that initial deal size, which could hurt the customer experience and slow down the sales process. And so I think regardless of what we call these roles, there's a broader need to rethink uh, what we're looking for in these profiles, how they, how they go about their day-to-day -day job and how they're rewarded uh, for success. You know, it's funny, Kyle, I hosted Sahil Mansuri, who's the founder and CEO of Bravado, which is a network of 70,000 B2B sales professionals. And our whole podcast was about advocating that sales compensation needs to change and their job needs to change. That salespeople today, especially in the subscription model, their job is to be customer advocates 
and solution engagement advisors, and that we should actually eliminate the concept of variable comp and quota, and that we should measure them and reward them based upon product engagement and customer value. But that's a whole different podcast. We're going to have to wrap up here. I know you've got a hard stop on the other end. Two last questions. Number one, another KPI we haven't talked about that you've been promoting is natural rate of growth, NRG. Can you tell our audience what that is? And this is uh, part of our work around defining what KPIs really look like for product-led businesses, because as we talked about at the beginning, a lot of PLG companies don't grow in the same way that, uh, that their peers grow. And, you know, while, as I said, the CAC ratio or the CAC payback is often lower, uh, they tend to be spending more money on R&D, right, on product and engineering. And so even like, how do you quantify the value of that product and engineering spend? And is that now part of CAC, the CAC ratio if you're using the product to drive growth? Uh, but natural rate of growth is our uh, kind of our first attempt at one of these KPIs. And it's trying to quantify how much essentially a, how fast a business would grow uh, without trying. And so it's looking at uh, the percentage of your signups that come in through organic channels like word of mouth, referrals, SEO, where you're not paying for acquisition and what percentage of them come into the product on its own without talking to uh, a sales rep. And then how much of your growth is driven by that really healthy motion where you can kind of set it for and forget it, right? It's not requiring incremental cost of acquisition. And the companies that are growing really fast um, in, in that kind of natural way uh, have a, a really great opportunity at uh, finding ways to layer on paid sales and marketing spend to accelerate their growth, but need to be looking at that spend as how effective is it at that incremental growth versus just sort of being uh, blurred together with the natural rate of growth that's extremely healthy, right? Because one of the last things you want to do is if a company has this 50% natural rate of growth that like they don't necessarily, uh, that's you know, super healthy, it's, it's humming along, really efficient, has essentially a CAC payback of next to zero. And then they do a bunch of unnatural things with sales and marketing to try to increase growth from 50% to 75%. They might find that overall their CAC payback and CAC ratio is, is normal, but the, uh, this sort of paid effort that they have is really, um, bad and they're just uh, not separating out what's working extremely well and efficiently from this, these extra things that they're doing. And so to me, just trying to get smarter about untangling those different factors will help companies that have a PLG motion understand what are ways to accelerate growth and move beyond uh, what's already working in a, in a way that increases enterprise value. Kyle, is there a benchmark for NRG or is it very specific to phase of company, et cetera? It's specific to phase of company. I mean, it's, it's pretty common for companies early on in their, in their ARR uh, journey to uh, be growing faster. And so naturally they tend to have a higher natural rate of growth than, uh, you know, companies at scale. But I'd say any company that is north of 
50% natural rate of growth tends to be doing a, a pretty solid job. Great. Kyle, thank you so much for joining me today on the Metrics at Major Rep podcast. Um, I'm going to have to invite you back, though, because as a, a real mathematics geek, we didn't get to talk about R squared and the correlation of NPS, net promoter score, to retention rates. I'd love to invite you back to have that discussion if you're open to it. Yeah, that sounds great. Anything you'd like to leave our audience with on PLG, Kyle? I uh, just that if folks are interested, you can check out a lot of uh, great content and podcasts uh, about the topic. Just go to openviewpartners.com slash blog or check out our OV build podcast, uh, or you can follow me on, on LinkedIn. Great. Thank you so much, Kyle. And audience, thank you for listening to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast.